This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hello, it's your old pal Jeff back with my new favorite thing, uh, too many announcements before the show. The first thing I want to mention uh, is that this is an episode about the movie Showgirls. You definitely do not have to have seen the movie Showgirls to listen to the episode. Um, But one thing you should be aware of going in uh, is that this is a movie that depicts sexual violence. It's a very small part of the movie, but we do talk about it in this episode. And if that's not something you want to hear, I totally get it. No problem. I apologize. We'll be back uh, in seven days. There'll be a new episode for you next week. On a much lighter note... uh, I don't know, this is episode number 245, 246, something like that. I've been doing this nine years. I think this is the first time I've had a guest who is named Jeff. I'm not counting uh, the five-year anniversary episode where I found other people named Jeff Rubin. We had a roundtable of Jeffs. I think this is my first pure Jeff guest, and it's a good one, so I'm excited uh, for you to hear it. Finally... I cannot let this episode start without telling you that this episode of the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show is brought to you by LiesGame.com, a game made by me, Jeff Rubin. LiesGame.com is a very simple, very fun game. You can play with your friends. Uh, Everyone just opens up their phone, goes to LiesGame.com. The game will take it from there. One thing I wanted to say is uh, I put this offer out on social media, and it's been very fun. I will show up on any podcast or any stream, whatever, Um, to talk about this game, to talk about how it came to exist, to play the game with you. I showed up on a few streams and played a few rounds. I'll do anything. As long as you're not affiliated with the alt-right, I will do anything. Um, So don't be shy. Reach out to me. That is Jeff at JeffRubinJeffRubinShow.com. Basically, obviously, the only people taking me up on this are Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show fans. So it's been really nice, and everything I've done has been really fun. So please don't be shy. Um, This is a game about lying. You get to make up uh, things that are not true and try to trick your friends into believing them. Uh, I made it. I made this game with the help of some friends. Um, it is liesgame.com, and I would love it if you would consider checking it out, playing around, or telling your friends who are interested in this sort of thing. Don't make me put a mid-roll in the middle of this episode. I'll do it. I will put a mid-roll in Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin shows. And I should say, um because of, you know, what has been an erratic release schedule, that we are still in the middle of what I guess is a season, and there will be another episode next week and at least the week after that. So thank you for listening. Thanks for sticking around. And without further ado, uh, let's start the episode. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin. Joining me today is Jeffrey McHale, the director of You Don't Know Me, a documentary that re-examines the 1995 movie Showgirls. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Hello, Jeff. How's it going? I'm great. So let me see if I can set up Showgirls for those who are unfamiliar with this movie. Um, Like I said, it was released in 1995. Uh, It was directed by Paul Verhoeven, who was a Dutch director um, at this point, he had made three movies in the U.S., all of which were not just commercial hits, but were also critically well-received and or cultural phenomenon. And those movies were RoboCop, uh, Basic Instinct, and why am I forgetting the third one? Basic And uh, Total Recall, of course. Total Recall, yeah. RoboCop, <laughs> Total Recall, and Basic Instinct. He announces his next movie is going to be Showgirls. And even before the movie came out, This was something with a lot of buzz for a few reasons. One is it was 
Um, the high, the studio paid $2 million for the script, which was unprecedented at the time. And then the other thing, stop me from getting any of this wrong, and then we're going to let you talk. It, uh, the movie, they planned to make an NC-17 movie full of nudity. NC-17 is kind of like the harshest, uh, most adult rating you can get in the U.S. Uh, and most of the times, if a movie has an NC-17, that means like, Something went wrong, or it's kind of aggressively yucky, or maybe it's an art house indie movie. But this was like, no, we're going to make an NC-17 movie that's going to play in the multiplexes. Everyone's going to see it. It's going to be a big hit. The movie came out. Critics hated it. Uh, It bombed at the box office, though later was apparently a hit on video. And that is sort of the movie Showgirls. Uh, Can you help me, like, what did critics, because it wasn't just that critics didn't like it. Like, it was like a punchline. What what was the reaction like when Showgirls came out? Yeah, I mean, it was, um, I mean, it was just violently rejected by, you know, kind of the critical establishment. I mean, I think probably that, you know, Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus kind of went on this um, press, you know, the, a lot of the press they were doing beforehand um, was kind of trying to paint it in like kind of a high-minded uh, way uh, the, the film and so I think that when when it came out I think everyone was just shocked and disgusted and, and appalled and you know I mean it was an easy target you know uh, and so I think they uh, they just went after it with everything uh, that they had and you know it became a joke you know there was just like you know is this a bad movie or is this show girls bad you know for years and so you know it eventually won like you know the Razzie worst movie of the year worst movie of the decade um and so yeah for years it was just kind of a joke amongst the mainstream you know but was kind of living you know among among cult audiences you know midnight screenings for for the last 25 years so the movie came out like i keep saying 1995 when did you first see it I came to it late. Um, in 95, I was probably a little too sheltered uh, to have seen Showgirls in the, in the theaters. I was probably still watching Saved by the Bell on TV when it came out. But um, Well, you, I saw... you literally wouldn't have been allowed to see Showgirls in theaters if no, you were under the no, age of no. 17. Like, that's the thing. Like, I think an R-rated movie, theoretically, you can go in with an adult. NC-17, no minors allowed. So if you were watching... Saved by the Bell, there's a pretty good chance you were not allowed to go see Showgirls in theaters. And we should explain that connection. Showgirls stars Elizabeth Berkley, who, of course, played Jesse Spano on Saved by the Bell. Exactly, yes. So you didn't see it in theaters. I didn't see it in theaters. I don't think, I think very few people saw it in theaters. Like, most people who have seen it have experienced it at home. Like, how was it introduced to you? It was introduced through a friend, and I think it was just one of, I feel like I saw it the way most people see showgirls um at least back you know kind of 10 years ago or 10 years after it had come out is you know people it, it would come up in conversation and then you know when when one of your friends said they haven't seen it you would walk over to your dvd shelf and pull it out and show it to them and, and that's what happened to me you know my friend uh we were hanging out uh in his apartment late one night in chicago when i was there going to film school and whatever you know the topic came up and he had it uh in his home collection and and you know my mind was just blown immediately i mean just from the first six minutes i mean it's like nothing you've ever seen um so what blew your mind about it like what you know so this is what's difficult about showgirls like so i let's pretend for a moment i haven't seen showgirls (laughs) like how would you sell me on watching because it does have this reputation it's even if you um are a defender, you're probably, I think, you tell me, you might acknowledge it's not quote-unquote 
traditionally good in the way that other good movies are good. So how would like what's the pitch for just make getting me interested in watching this movie, which is on HBO, so people on on the new HBO Max service, so people like it is you know very accessible at the moment. It is. It's finally streaming. It kind of comes and goes uh, over the years, and now it's back on HBO. So I would encourage your listeners to check it out if they haven't seen it. But so Zelda, I, I if mean, you, if you the, haven't seen yeah, it, like, easiest, why should I watch it? If the, it, especially, yeah, yeah, why should I watch it? It's just like nothing you've ever seen. I mean, it, it really is one of those uh, a, a really special and unique film. Um, the ways in which it, um, the ways in it, it succeeds, it succeeds because of its failures. Failures, and I think that's unique. And I feel like most movies, most bad movies, um, are just forgettable. You know, they're they're not they're not. Um, special they're not they they don't cause this much excitement i mean literally from the moment uh, they press play on the dvd you know your heart starts beating because there's just certain decisions and i mean the acting is so over the top the dialogue is so over the top um i mean there's a car crash there's a vomit there's a fortune one fortune lost you know all within the first six minutes and you know it just doesn't let up and so i think that um for people who you know appreciate you know uh art like this i i I think it's something that needs to be experienced i I really do what are some without (laughs) quote-unquote spoiling the movie what are some of the elements of the movie that like make it so unique like what makes showgirls different than there's another movie your documentary invokes striptease this was a movie Mm -hmm. that was released a year later starring demi moore it was rated r but was still it's similar in that it was sort of sold with you know the promise of nudity and kind of being in a uh, a real movie that also had uh, nudity as kind of a central thing. So, but Striptease is a movie that, you know, we're not doing a podcast about, but it's like a similar movie from a similar era. It uh, was also not well reviewed. Like, what's the difference between something like Striptease and something like Showgirls? What makes Showgirls so memorable? Well, I think the difference, yeah, I mean, that's interesting because the difference, I think, with Striptease, I, there are kind of. Uh, elements to it that feel uh, comedic or that feels like they're a little bit in on the joke and the joke isn't good (laughs) Um, or it's not funny. Uh, And so I think with Showgirls, there's so much, so much of the appeal of it kind of is around the allure and the mystery of what everybody was thinking. I think that's like your, that's your first entry into it. It was what were these people thinking when they made this film? Because here you have this, you know, big budget studio major studio uh back production um about you know a a 19 year old wannabe dancer who moves to las vegas uh to 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 make it big follow her dreams and um she gets caught up in the world of you know the the backstage las vegas shows she works at at the cheetah which is the local strip club there and and i think that it's just there there's there's nothing like it and it's it's hard to really explain you know what what it is about it but um but yeah sorry (laughs) was this your first paul verhoeven movie did you have any familiarity with him I have, yeah. I um, had seen actually. I think I saw Starship Troopers before Showgirls, which was a movie then, he made after Showgirls. Yeah, I think it's his, his next his, movie, right? Yeah, it was the movie that came out afterwards. Um, it was kind of his, you know, his, another big, big, big budget blockbuster sci-fi um, special effects spectacular. And I think he, um, 
Yeah, so I was a fan of, of his, and I loved Basic Instinct, too, which, you know, which he wrote with uh, Joe Esterhaus, the writer of Showgirls, too. And so this was, they teamed up again um, to work on Showgirls, and I think, you know, they had a little bit of a falling out over the a disagreement about the script. Um, there were some, somebody, you know, some LGBT groups got a hold of an early draft, and they were, you know, pretty critical about the way that, um, LGBTQ characters were depicted in Basic Instinct, so there was all these protests and people, you know, boycotts for it, and so they had this kind of falling out um, during the production of that film. But they kind of came together and made amends um, over this <laughs> this dream to make uh, you know a modern day musical set in Vegas. How much do you think, like, when you're watching Showgirls and you're like, what were they thinking? I, to me, it feels like a lot of that instinct is driven by the fact that it is a Paul Verhoeven movie, and if you've seen RoboCop, if you've seen Starship Troopers, if you've seen Total Recall, you know that he kind of makes sort of trashy movies, which I say with nothing but love in my heart, mm-hmm. uh, but trashy movies that have, this is like my favorite kind of movie, actually, like a trashy movie that actually has something to say, that has like an, in, mm-hmm. an intelligence at the core, like, that's kind of his thing, or, you know, I think that's something he's sort of known for. So I think with Showgirls, like, for me, I'm just, like, banging my head against it. Like, there's got to be something going on here. Like, there's something intentional was done. Do you think, like, the fact that he did it is a reason that, like, people are just, uh, you know, that the mystery of how it got made and how it got made the the way it got made is driven by by him? For sure, yeah. I think there is this kind of allure that he that he brings to his, his projects. I mean, he is uh, a provocateur. I mean, he's he said... He loves to provoke. He loves to get reactions out of people. And so I think he makes some of his choices and some of his decisions, you know, with his films um, based on kind of like the reaction. He want, he wants to, you know, kind of kind of uh, stir the pot and, and, and see see what happens. And so I think he, he also plays with satire, too. You know, um, I, I think people are able to recognize, you know, the satirical elements and the the commentary he's making you know when, when it comes to uh violence and a lot of his you know uh, action films you know they're able to kind of look at robocop and be like okay this is about you know kind of uh the you know police you know the our policing and and then looking at starship troopers and looking at like the military industrial complex and stuff like that um but i think people had a harder time uh, seeing those those same kind of themes um, brought to uh, showgirls, you know, which I which yeah, which I think was you know his kind of comment on American consumption and greed, and you know, of course, you're going to set that into you know set that film in Las Vegas, which is you know a uniquely American city. Well, the one thing that I think everyone could agree on about showgirls that is a surprising element of quality of the movie is that there is this theme that um, men in show business treat women terribly and that all, women are abused at every level of show business. And um, that feels very relevant today. That's something that's mm-hmm. like more out there. And like there's there that piece of the movie actually feels pretty current, you know, and mm-hmm. feels like in tune with today's conversation. And I don't know, I guess I'm wondering, do you think, now you know with me too and all these things like does that give us another does that like help the movie at all because it speaks to those themes and like even if it doesn't do it eloquently it it seems as if it is legitimately concerned with them yeah i i I do think that i mean the interesting thing about showgirls is you know there it's 
we're not really done with it. We're not really done kind of figuring it out. And and I think that that is obviously one of the major themes within the film. And, and you know, Paul and Joe kind of famously went on this um, kind of fact-finding mission to Vegas, uh, you know, to do research for this film. And, and so they interviewed, you know, dancers and choreographers and strippers and, you know, kind of people all all over, you know, within that scene in Vegas. And, you know, heard some of those stories and, and you know, based some of those, you know, based the film on some of those stories they heard. So, yeah, there I think there is truth, you know, to a lot of those elements. But I, I, I guess, you know, you just kind of have to question, you know, the the motives and intentions, you know, I mean, because if I mean, it, it's just some of those decisions, I, I, I think, weren't handled, you know, in the proper way that in the sensitivity of where I think they they should have been, you know, if that's what his goal and, and, and what he was trying to do and what they were trying to accomplish. Right. Um, so, yeah. And, and that's the interesting thing about it is, is you have this film who's that is kind of you can you can clearly see the arguments of misogyny uh, against it. But, you know, I don't think you have to have feminist um, principles or ideals guiding uh, a film's production in order for people to find those messages within it. And I think that's what's really interesting about Showgirls is, you know, the vast number of women and LGBTQ and queer people who find, you know, kind of found their own kind of strength and, and journey within those that character in those films. How would you compare Showgirls to something like The Room? Are you familiar with The Room, the, you mm-hmm. know, really bad yeah. movie? Like, yep. so The Room's also fairly singular. It's also, I guess, in this kind of, so. would you put it in the same so bad it's good bucket? Like, how how would you compare the two movies? Yeah, I would. I mean, yeah, The Room has a very kind of similar um, kind of cult uh, appeal. Um, but I guess the difference between The Room and Showgirls is, you know, The Room wasn't, uh, a forty million dollar, you know, major studio film. It, it was a small independent production that was, you know, kind of financed by yeah um, this, uh, you know, by this by Tommy Wiseau. And I think he, um, he is such an interesting character, um, and he brings that to the film too. But I, I think that you really can't compare the two. I think that there is, you know, a lot of the appeal um, is similar, and, and where it's like. What was he thinking? What was kind of uh, what was going on? You know, on set. I feel like a lot of that stuff is fascinating to to hear and think about. And and when you watch something like The Room, you know, you're you're kind of asking some of those same questions when you watch Showgirls. But I mean, the subject matters are completely different, and you know, the production is completely different. But you know, I think that there is a crossover amongst the audiences. There is a real hubris to Showgirls because it isn't another movie. Like, they were like, we're going to change Hollywood. We're going to make NC-17 movies like a viable commercial thing. You know, it Mm -hmm. it really was like they kind of, I don't know, I I feel like a lot of the negativity they received is just because they puffed it up so much. Like, it really wasn't just like they set themselves up to get knocked down a little bit. Do you think that's there's anything to that? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of hype that they were putting into it. And and I think that's what the, the, the... the, the bet that the studio made was that, you know, we're going to have to use use the sex and we're going to use the nudity to to sell this and, and to get, you know, people in, in seats in the theater. But um, but the funny thing is, yes, you, like as you mentioned earlier, it uh, did make back, you know, quite a bit of money uh, in home video sales and rentals and stuff. And to this day is, is still considered one of MGM's, you know, top 20, I think, grossing films of all time. But yeah, I, I think just having that NC-17 they were really trying to kind of hype that up. And I think with Paul Verhoeven too, I think he entered into this 
coming off of Basic Instinct, where he, you know, has given plenty of interviews about how frustrating the process of, of cutting Basic Instinct down to the R rating, which he was contractually required to to deliver. And with with Showgirls, he didn't have that, so he he knew he could make an NC-17 film going into this, and I think he wanted to kind of get away with as much as he could. All right, so you see this movie on DVD, or I think it was DVD. I'm not sure we got into the media format, mm-hmm. but you see this movie at home a few years later. Like, what's the journey between that night where you saw it the first time and you saying, I have to make a feature-length documentary about this movie? And I should mention again, the name of the documentary you made is You Don't Know Me, and um, it's N-O-M-I. For those who are unfamiliar with Showgirls, that's the name of Elizabeth Berkley's character. She is Nomi, so it's You Don't Know Me. Kind of a pun. So what happens between that first night where you see uh, Showgirls and, uh, you know, you taking on a documentary about it? Yeah, I, um, you know, from from first viewing, I, I had been a fan of it. And so it was one of those films that I would revisit maybe once once or twice a year. Um, and something always... How many times do you think you've seen Showgirls? Yeah, I don't... <laughs> I can't even... I can't even... Yeah, I don't even know. I mean, it would probably be in the 50 to 100 range, I would think. Okay, um, okay. But, and, and then, you know, since we're working on this, obviously I've, I've seen a lot um, in, in very, you know, short clips and stuff like sure, that. Sure, so yeah, I, I probably, mean, the documentary uses <laughs> a lot of footage from the movie, so I assume, you know, you're, um, yeah. But yeah, from sitting from sitting down from start to finish, yeah, I'd, prob- I'd probably say closer to 50, maybe. Um, but yeah, you know, I'd visit it, revisit it, you know. Um, once or twice a year, uh, and was always, you know, always enjoyed it. And a couple of years later, um, I, you know, when ma- online when mashups were big, online trailer mashups, I, I made one with uh, Showgirls and Black Swan, um, just for fun. And that kind of, you know, people really responded to that online. Um, and then, you know, I moved out to LA after that, and kind of followed my uh, kind of passion and filmmaking and got got a job in television just like of, nomi how she followed her passion know, for dancing I when know. she moved to vegas i know left the windy city and moved to <laughs> moved to los angeles and so i uh i was working in television and um and yeah i i, I one night i went to um Cinespia, which is a uh, outdoor film film screening series that they do here every summer uh, they have outdoor film screenings at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, and it was the 20th anniversary of Showgirls, and we went with some friends, and, um, you know, being in L.A., we sometimes get the occasional uh, celebrity or person who was in, you know, associated with, with the film will speak before or afterwards or say a few words, and um, but I don't think any any of us had expected that anybody from the film would be there that night, but... You know, to our surprise, Elizabeth Berkeley came out and introduced the film, and it was just one of those moments where it felt like, oh my God, we're like, I'm I'm witnessing uh, film history here. You know, this was kind of her first um, kind of public embrace of the film um, in in 20 years, and, and she said something that really stuck with me was like, this would be the first time that she's going to see the film with a, with a crowd that is will have embraced it. You know, and so. Um, that kind of stuck with me. And after that, I was just, I wanted to kind of dive a little bit deeper. And I kind of understand my own kind of fascination and curiosity with the film. I started reading uh, everything that had been written um, about Showgirls. So I started with, you know, Adam Naiman's book and read, uh, listened to David Schmader's commentary and, and started reading all the reviews and, you know, essays and things. What is that? And, what is that book you read? 
um, Adam Naiman's book, Showgirls, It Doesn't Suck. It's it's kind of like a small, small little, you could kind of get through it probably in a day. Um, but it's a, it's a great not a of, Not a lot, not a, not a lot to no. write about why Showgirls doesn't suck, I guess. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, Adam's brilliant and, uh, yeah, I just hadn't heard the film discussed that way before. So, I mean, that was fascinating. And, and I just started kind of collecting all these, these interesting and diverse points of view about the film and started reaching out to those people. And, and I was really inspired by, um, other films like essay style documentaries, um, room 237, Los Angeles place itself. Um, and so I, I, I thought, okay, this is a, a topic that obviously interests me, and this feels like something I can do on my own time, you know, in my, my free time outside my day job. And so I just kind of worked on this thing from my comfort of my kitchen table. Um, wow, really? So yeah. this documentary is like a side project for you? Because I watched it. It's like totally a feature-length documentary. I would have assumed you like dedicated, you know, I mean, you did dedicate a lot of your life to it, but I would never have guessed <laughs> it was a side project. I really wouldn't have. Yeah, no, I kept it pretty quiet for the first like year and a half. Um, I, I reached out to all the the people um, who I interviewed, and I, you know, we sent them audio recorders. I did, we didn't shoot a frame of video in the making of this film, so it's all original uh, interviews conducted via Skype. I sent, I mailed them an audio kit where they could record themselves on. Um, and then they would. This was before that was the only way to conduct an interview. I right, 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 right. Yeah, I know. This is kind of like uh covid style filmmaking pre covid <laughs> um, so but you did an interview correct me if i'm wrong i don't know that you spoke did you produce any new interviews you talked to like a lot of the people who are i think responsible for the film being reevaluated and appreciated and new but you didn't talk to anyone actually in the f- uh, in, in the production any of the cast or crew or did you Correct. No, no, no. Yeah, i didn't reach out. I didn't want to make like kind of your your traditional behind the scenes making of Film, you know, with with what I after reading all these these opinions and theories and, and criticism and, and critiques, um, what I found more interesting was just the the way in which the film has lived, and I um, I, I still thought it was important to kind of look at the uh, the way in which those uh, the cast and crew members have discussed it over the years, and the way they've discussed it has evolved, and so you know that that was one thing that I you know kind of looked at and explored, but. Um, but yeah, we didn't reach out to any any of the people, and and I wanted to kind of focus on, um, the how we live with this film, you know, and and the evolution of it. Are what are the major milestones in the evolution of Showgirls and it transitioning from being like a punchline to actually this kind of celebrated thing? Yeah, so it it so <laughs> I I stole um the from Adam Naiman's book. He kind of coined this term. Uh, piece of shit, masterpiece, and masterpiece of shit. Like those are the three categories uh, of the response of showgirls. And so um, I use that as kind of like a structural device uh, for the film. And the first, you know, obviously the the initial reception was disastrous. You know, it, it was it, it ruined careers. People made fun of it. It was a joke. Uh, so that would be the, the piece of shit. And then, you know, kind of shortly after it had come out, um, cult and queer audiences had, took it in and embraced it as the masterpiece that they were, that, you know, that they thought it was. And then slowly after that, it allowed uh, critics and, and kind of more mainstream, more mainstream uh, to kind of give it a second chance and another look and, and see, Oh, okay. Like it, it can be both at the same time. Like there is this kind of weird middle ground where it occupies and it, 
it 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 allows for it to become you know the masterpiece of shit, which I think is where we are currently at with it. So, what is the deal? This is a great interview question. With the LGBTQ embrace of the movie, why does because as we mentioned, Paul Verhoeven. Uh, and Joe Esterhaus movies did not have a great track record with this community. Um, you know, the movie was obviously sold on nudity. As you mentioned, there's like, a, it's not too hard to watch it and come away thinking it's misogynistic. So like, mm-hmm. why did the movie come to be embraced by those communities? I think in the beginning, it was probably very similar. Obviously, you know, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. And I think, you know, we have these these films that are, you know, kind of trashy, they're vulgar, they're over the top. And I think that what that's what draws us in in the beginning. Um, and so for the longest time, I think that was it. it was like this big spectacle. It was, you know, it, it, the the dialogue that you heard in it was was like dialogue you've never heard before uh, in a film. And but, you know, one of the interesting uh, points of view, uh, I talked to a guy named Matt Baum, and he kind of pinpointed that, you know, that there is probably something a little bit deeper, too, that I think a lot of us can relate to. Know me as a character, you know, she uh, kind of goes through this hero's journey as, as someone to kind of sets out and follow her dreams to a big city. She finds her chosen family. You know, she uses her strength and sexuality to fend for herself. You know, and, and I think that that is a story that many queer people can relate to, you know, someone mm-hmm. who fights to be seen, to be heard, to be recognized. And so um, I think there is like something deeper that, you know, I, I wasn't really aware of when, when you know, the first few years of, of, of me loving the film. But, you know, th- there are there are elements to to those characters that I think that we are we are drawn to, you know, on a, on a different level. And. Um, you know, one of the other contributors, Jeffrey Conway, kind of put Showgirls as the third film in the, in the trilogy of camp, you know, so camp films are, are something that, that, you know, that we love. We love like, a, you know, a good John Waters film and, and, but these would be more of like a high camp, you know, something that films that weren't, um, that weren't necessarily intended uh, for us or for, you know, this type of audience or this type of response. And so he, he puts it up with Valley of the Dolls. Uh, and Mommy Dearest. And um, and so those three films kind of sit sit together nicely as, you know, kind of like the trilogy of, of, of queer camp. Can I ask you to actually define camp? Because I, I have a sense of what it is, but I actually don't know that I have like a, a clear definition. What 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 does it mean? Like, how, how can I identify if a movie is campy or not? It's so it, camp is one of those things. Everybody kind of has their own idea. Idea of like what it is or what what um, what qualifies as camp. Like you know, I don't know if you remember a couple years ago the Met Gala. Uh, their theme was camp, and so there you know you have these celebrities who come out in these like extravagant costumes and and, and ball gowns and stuff like that. And there was uh, a lot of debate over was this a, is this successful camp or is this not? And I think that it was interesting to see, you know, like people can pinpoint like visually like, okay, this is camp, this dress is camp, this is not. And But I think the easiest way, you know, for me personally, um, kind of going back to the Susan Sontag uh, notes on camp, which was this, this, this essay that she wrote, you know, back in, back, I believe it was in the sixties. And um, the easiest way I, I would say would be failed seriousness. So if something you know, a, a piece of art, book, you know, movie fails at, you know, a, a level of seriousness that it's aiming for. Um, and it, it 
achieves a level of, of something greater, you know, which is this, that true high camp. Right. It seems like it almost, it can't just fail to meet the level of serious. It has to like kind of overshoot it. Like you can't, you don't want to undershoot it. It's like if you go past the level of seriousness in a way, right? Like it's, it's missing it in like a specific direction. Yeah. And, and like, obviously, you know, there are, there are things that, you know, many things in our culture now that are, you know, kind of made to 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 look bad and feel bad um and to kind of yeah like that, is snakes that, on a plane or like yeah, uh they, sharknado exactly. is that campy exactly. is sharknado exactly. campy um i you know that is i wouldn't put it in the the camp category it could be campy or it could be more kind of cult but um but those those are all produced and made you know um everybody's in on the joke you know what i mean those weren't oh those yeah weren't, those weren't serious films. Those weren't, you know, kind of um, million-dollar blockbusters that 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 ultimately failed and found, you know, found their audience. I mean, th- those the marketing campaigns and you know the writing. I mean, everybody is kind of aware of, of what they're making, and and so I, I, you know, those those things feel a little bit. Uh, those don't do it for me. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. Say. Of the people that you talked to, was there like a favorite interview that you were glad you were able to get in the in, in the uh, documentary? Um, was there a favorite person? You know, I um, everyone was really everyone that I reached out to was really excited uh, to talk to. The, the hard part was actually finding a critic who I, w- I wanted to find a critic who reviewed it negatively at the time um, and see if you know their opinions of it had maybe had changed over the years. And that was actually one of the harder things to kind of get somebody who, you know, um, who wanted to participate in something like that. So I reached out to, you know, a bunch of critics and, you know, was thankfully able to, to, to get, you know, two, two different, two distinct voices, um, Barbara Schulgesser Parker and Susan Wazina. And um, they were kind of able to provide, you know, kind of the, the point counterpoint uh, argument of the pro and con of Showgirls. Susan was uh, on, I don't know if you look on Metacritic, but it's kind of it's kind of like a Rotten Tomatoes site. But sure. her, her original review uh, of Showgirls uh, for, for USA Today is the only review that's that's uh, in green at the very top above a bunch of red. Um, so but yeah, but everybody else, I mean, like Peaches Christ had been uh, who was a, you know, uh, a filmmaker and, and, and drag queen from from San Francisco had been doing midnight screenings of Showgirls for the last twenty five years, and obviously, you know, she was was really excited to be a part of this. Um, David Schmader, who provided the commentary track on the official DVD of Showgirls, um, was one of the first person I reached out to, and he, you know, was was eager and excited. So, I mean, if if you had written or done something showgirls adjacent you know you're going to be probably excited to to participate in something like this so um yeah it, it didn't run into any roadblocks in that area kind of a boring legal technical question but do you even though you're not talking to the crew or the cast um you do as we mentioned incorporate a lot of footage from the movie and not just this movie but other movies like beyond the valley of the dolls um like other Verhoeven movies like it, do you have to work with the studios on that how did how did, how did you navigate that so there, yes, there that that is that was a huge uh, uh, hurdle obstacle to kind of um, to to figure out. I actually sat down with uh, Rodney Asher, who who produced the film, uh, directed Room Two Three Seven, uh, which is mm, kind of sure, a similar yeah. form similar format, but it was about The Shining, and 
And uh, the best advice he gave me was just make the movie that you want and then, you know, start <laughs> once your movie's done, then then bring in the lawyers because, you know, I, I just didn't know how to how to approach this. And, you know, I knew obviously we'd be using lots of footage from Showgirls. Um, but then also after watching all of Paul Verhoeven's early films, which I never, you know, I, I'd never seen his early Dutch work um, I, my mind was kind of blown because there were so many threads and themes and interesting um, moments that kind of all felt like they connected back to Showgirls. Um, and and I wanted a way to kind of uh, a way to kind of visually tell that and, and to kind of create this new sub subplot where, you know, the, the characters in Verhoeven's other films are kind of interacting with the contributors experience and, and, you know, the characters of showgirls themselves. So, you know, that was a whole other, um, kind of layer. And we worked with, you know, one of the top legal, uh, clearance houses, you know, out here in LA, um, Donaldson and Califf, and they, you know, watched the film, um, kind of gave us their, their initial impression. And then, um, we kind of went through it with a fine tooth comb, basically, uh, organizing it and categorizing every single shot in the film and and any area where they felt like fair use um wasn't justified which is which is how um you know i was able to use all this stuff um kind of all under the fair use doctrine um then we had we either retooled it or um kind of changed stuff or moved stuff around um but i think ultimately it made made the film stronger after all that what's an example of something when you go back and watch his dutch movies which i have not seen What's something you saw and then like a light bulb went off like, wait a minute, that's something I've seen in Showgirls as well. Yeah. Well, the, the first the first thing was just um, women throwing up like that. That seemed right. to appear uh, in multiple films. And I was just like, what is this about? Um, in the American ones, it, too. And in, in yeah, Social Trooper, yeah. someone throws up. There's a lot of you put those together. There's a lot of like little mini supercuts. And it's like, here's yeah. I didn't actually realize watching the documentary that it was all women vomiting. I thought it was just people yeah. vomiting <laughs> specifically. Yeah, you got you got a good, I don't know, six, seven examples of women yeah. vomiting. That is a lot. That does become a theme. There's a um, fascination with nails um, that, that kind of reoccurs. There is, you know, obviously violence. There's kind of the gratuitous, you know, use of appearance of sexual violence that, that kind of reoccurs through all of his films. Um, so, yeah, so there were I mean, there's just uh, the, the craziest one that I found was the 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 doggy chow, which, you know, kind of the famous, uh, as David Schmader says, the crown jewel of, of showgirls where the Gina Gershon and Elizabeth Berkeley are sitting across from each other on their uh, their lunch date at Spago, and the two women kind of convene their their love of eating doggy chow when they were kids, and it's just one of those incredibly strange, so yeah, bizarre. It's just, one it's of just those, like, like what? Yeah, what are we talking about here? And you know, it's like nothing you've ever seen or heard before. And when I was watching his. Uh, film spetters that that similar kind of theme popped up there too where you know one of the the characters um was accusing um a woman of putting dog food uh in her you know in the food that she was serving in her food stand and i was just like what like this is this is just really fucking bizarre (laughs) um but um but yeah Uh, i am someone who Really enjoys the American work of Paul Verhoeven, but I've never seen any of his Dutch movies. Are there any that you would recommend? I haven't seen. He's done uh, since he he stopped making U.S. movies after I, I guess Hollow Man, and mm-hmm. he's done I don't know two, maybe three um, 
foreign films since then. I haven't seen any of those either. One of them, I think, yeah. won an Oscar. Uh, so yeah. are there... Are there uh, L won um, the Golden Globe, I think, for Best Foreign Film uh, a couple of years ago. Um, Black Book is good, which is also, you know, one of the films he made uh, over in Europe after Showgirls. Um, and then I personally like The Fourth Man. Um, and that the is... The Fourth Man? It, is that a sequel to The Third Man? Is it like referencing <laughs> no, The Third Man? It's, it's actually very similar to Basic Instinct. So, yeah, there's a lot of similar similar threads uh in in there um but yeah i i think his it's not going to be for everybody but if you're really interested if you like his his american films i definitely encourage people to um to go back and watch some of his early work you mentioned the sexual assault um and that that's a theme in these movies i gotta say that is like one of the i mean to say the least it's one of the uglier moments of showgirls like it, it has a pre- some pretty brutal stuff in there and i guess i wonder like when you're watching the movie and like when in the documentary the thing it reminded me of was like kind of it's a kind of rocky horror picture show you know it's like a party and everyone's like enjoying it is that a fair comparison Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So then what happens when you're at, like, this joyous gathering and everyone's partying, and then, like, a scene like that comes on? Like, how, what, how does that fit into kind of the, um, so, like, it, which is kind of brutal, and I think, like, impossible to enjoy even ironically, I think. Um, oh, so no. How, how, yeah. how do you, like, react when, like, there's, like, in, in a party atmosphere when, like, th- that scene comes on? Well, yeah, if you're watching it at home, uh, you could skip it. Um, like David Schmader, you know, he does these these live annotated readings um, over the years. And whenever he got to that scene, he would skip it. Um, if you are um, at a theater, you could, <laughs> you could go to the bathroom, go, go get some popcorn, go to the refreshment stand. That's what, you know, I, I know Peaches Christ uh, it, it encourages, you know, in, in their shows. And so, yeah, I, I think it's one of those things, you know, you think you're, you're enjoying this. Um, and then you get to this, you know, brutal, disgusting, violent, um, rape uh of of you know nomi's best friend and it it just it 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 just goes awry and 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 it it just makes you kind of question everything else that you had seen up until that point and so um and you know the the defenses of it you know kind of make you question things things more and you know it, it it just and then it's also it made me question just seeing how much he used that as a device in all of his films. I mean, in, in all of his films, there's you know some instance of you know sexual violence, and I think Hollow uh, Man, the theme of Hollow Man is sexual yeah, violence, if creepy. I remember correctly. It's creepy. Yeah, yeah, it's like he's he's just you know he's a, a stalker, you know, like just creeping on women uh, and touching them. Yeah, it, it, it's just I, I can't explain it. I, I'm not going to you know kind of try to get in his mind of, of what you know why he he it's a theme he kind of keeps going back to but um definitely wanted to point it out what is your favorite scene in the movie what's the opposite of that scene in the movie for you <laughs> um we already talked about the doggy chow that would definitely be one be one of them uh but i think yeah just the the i i go kind of back and forth between that and the first six minutes just because they are so wild uh i mean like the 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 stage productions I think are are really exciting too because you know here they they are beautifully shot and that's yeah they definitely they spent that, a ton of money on it you can tell yeah <laughs> um, I mean they are they're very cheesy they're very nineties I mean the, the the music and the production and like the kind of yeah. like pyrotechnics going on it, it's it, it is I have a it, dumb question that's just occurring to me now like is yeah. that a thing in Vegas like large show musicals where all the 
women, if not the men too, are naked? That's like a, a genre of show in Vegas. Is this a dumb question? I mean, that was what uh, that's what Vegas was doing uh, for for years was was kind of putting on these large stage shows, um, and it was a way to get with um, with nudity. I, with nudity, yeah. I mean, I haven't I haven't cool. seen them, but you know, obviously, I've been to Vegas a bunch. I've seen a few shows, but I've not seen a show like I don't know. I, I believe it's there, and I'm not seeing it. I don't know, but like, yeah, they just, probably. I think they started. I mean, they they probably phased a lot of them out over the last. Sure, few Vegas years. become a lot more family friendly yeah, in the past and, twenty years. You know, or whatever. it was it was it was one of those things that I think each casino kind of thought they had to kind of one up the other casino. They basically wanted to get people in gambling and then, you know, kind of attract them in with these these kind of extravagant stage shows and and um and now, you know, they're kind of they've moved away from that obviously and, you know, focused on um, you know, concerts and, you know, DJs and that that kind of thing. But um, I mean, in the world of showgirls, stage shows are like a mini Hollywood with like right. reporters covering it. And like well, that's press what it makes, conferences. Yeah, that's what, like, that's what it definitely showgirls makes you like. You like she's that, she's in the show and it's like headline. Nomi is in the show yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I question some of, some of those those uh, the decisions. How well that stuff is actually covered? Uh, if there's going to be a mob of reporters, you know, kind of chasing these uh, these showgirls, but. Um, but that was one one person we I did actually speak to um, who didn't make it into the film was um, an actual Vegas showgirl. Um, her her name was Brooke Brown, and she was uh, kind of like the lead, the centerpiece dancer in um, in one of the shows out there. And you know she had her billboard kind of with her face kind of plastered all over Vegas, and you know could kind of line up and confirm you know some of the stories and you know. Things that were similar, things that were not at all. Um, but yeah, what did she say from the movie? Like resonated with her. What did she say was true? Yeah, yeah. The one thing that she said was it was funny how it became um, kind of a part of their their backstage banter, you know, and the like the line, the dialogue from the film then kind of found. W- ways to kind of you know they found ways to oh, make kind of like the way that like gangsters started talking like the characters like the in movies. the godfather after the <laughs> yeah. godfather came out exactly yeah they were like don't forget your brown rice and vegetables or you know watch out for the marbles or grab the ice or whatever so that was one uh and i guess they had a big giant cardboard cut out of elizabeth berkeley uh in one of their one of her shows uh but yeah you know it was, there was just certain certain things that she would you know she would highlight like you know, when during the stage shows um, where the the dancers would take off their clothes and strip, she was like, "Where are those clothes going? The, like, they're they're that's a it's a it's a hazard. Someone's gonna slip on that." You know, so like there were just certain things like that um, where I was like, "Oh yeah, well, I never really thought like where where does the the clothes go after after they've been removed um, in Showgirls?" And and as you can see, you know, someone one dancer does have an injury uh, on on some marbles, but uh, right, you right. don't see anymore. <laughs> Another weird thing about the Showgirls Strip Club is that they also pause for, like, a vaudeville set. This woman comes out and does, like, you know, shtick. Like, her jet dress is dropping. She's, like, um, I don't know. Like, that seems – it just struck me as something that it's hard to imagine in a in, in a strip club. Yeah. Oh, the drag queen, you mean? <laughs> no, no, not um, drag queen. Yeah, no, She's I know. Like, I'm kidding. It's her it's, mom it's, it's, or I mean, whatever. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Like, no, no, she is. Yeah, I mean, because she is essentially – that. that is uh, – Oh, yeah, that, she, that is, is – that would be – Yeah, see. that would be. Yeah, that, that whole kind of um, hostess, you know, the banter, the jokes, like that's I, – I, I, I've never seen anything, you know, a character like that in real life um, other than at drag shows, you know? 
Um, right, right, right. Do you have a favorite performance in the movie? And I got to tell you, I think there's a right answer to this question. <laughs> like which the which of the stage productions? Uh, no, no, like which actor or actress? Oh, oh gosh, yeah, it's Elizabeth Berkeley, of course. Oh, um, I was gonna say, well, I've, Elizabeth Berkeley. We sh- we should spend a minute talking about her, but I was gonna say Gina Gershon. I don't know how yeah. Gina Gershon is doing it, but she is not being terrible in the middle of Showgirls. Like I don't know, like she's acquitting herself very well, and om- I think mm-hmm. almost no one else on screen is. But the Gina Gershon, when she's on screen, you're like, okay. You know, you, you kind of yes. feels like a real movie again. Yes, and I think uh, with every, you know, with the film that she's in, yeah, she, she stands out as someone who is, you know, probably a little bit more aware of of what they're making and and the, the character. And it is interesting because sh- that is what most people think um, is that there is this kind of wink and the nod that she's bringing to the role. Um, and she said, you know, she's confirmed some of that stuff, you know, in, in the past. She said that, you know, because she approached the the character of Crystal Connors like a drag queen. Um, right. But I mean, um, she feels like she's having fun. Elizabeth Berkeley, God bless her, does not feel like she's having yeah. fun in this movie. And with, yeah, with Gina and Kyle MacLachlan, too, you know, they, they came into this film having, you know, a uh, ton of other work under their belt. You know, I mean, Elizabeth... But Elizabeth came in, into this was her first film out of Saved by the Bell, and so I think there was extra focus on you know kind of her decision to do a project like this, and um, I think she was un- unfairly treated by you know critics and the press, and yeah, um, she was clearly you know given this specific direction to you know act this certain way, and you know I was glad to see Paul uh, some years ago kind of make amends and you know take take responsibility for for the choices he made on set and you know specifically with her direct her her, you know her direction and and her acting but i don't think that you would we'd be talking about showgirls if if elizabeth wasn't in it you know i I like hearing it's true i like i like hearing you know the different um you know the rumored cast members you know i think drew barrymore was once supposed to play nomi charlie's theron was supposed to play nomi at one point um but but ultimately it went to elizabeth berkeley and, and i think you know it, the, those other versions would be interesting to see but um i don't know if they would have i don't know if they'd be as special as, as what we have you know i mean there's just this um you can just tell the, 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 she's putting so much uh into this performance and the role um that you know we just don't see you know performances like this you know nowadays do you have any other advice for people who have an idea, they have an interest, and want to make a documentary about it, want to do something about it, even if it's not a feature-length documentary, like a short documentary? I love mm-hmm. that you did this kind of in your spare time. Can you give any advice to anyone who is working on a project even like this, even if it's not a documentary in their spare time? How did you actually get it done? <laughs> I, you know, it, I grew up making films my whole life. It was it was something that I always wanted to do. Um, I never, I always thought, oh, okay, it'll be narrative stuff. You know, I wrote, wrote scripts and you know would would cast my friends in, in these you know kind of short films in high school and went to film school and then kind of you know as as adulthood hit, I slowly kind of like like fell into like oh, okay like you know editing's where where my strengths are you know and that's you know where my passion is and that's what I want to do and and kind of put my you know dreams of being a director aside um and so when this this subject kind of 
you know, when the, when the light bulb clicked, like, oh, like this is a topic I'm into. It's a topic I'm interested in. And I know that there's other people who, who like it too. I mean, Joke Girls has a, you know, a huge cult following. So, um, so I knew regardless of, of, you know, what I made, what I ended up being, you know, if it was good or bad, like there was, there would be an audience that would watch this. If, even if it was, you know, if I just had to upload it on YouTube, if you made the you know, showgirls of was... documentaries, maybe like if it was so yeah, bad, yeah. Yeah, so bad. <laughs> but I think that, yeah, you know, it, it's just finding time cart, you know, and, and one of the ways I was able to do this was, you know, I was able to kind of figure out like, Oh, what, what, you know, what are my, kind of limitations I, w- I was inspired by um f- films with a similar format i was like well you know i have you know my time and i have my equipment and so um if i can speak to people who are you know smart and you know have interesting things to say you know i i, I think i can i can make it into something worth watching and so um so that was that was it i mean if i set out to kind of you know travel across the country and shoot you know and raise money you know i I wouldn't right right you know i wouldn't basically i was able to get so much done because i i could work you know i could kind of figure it out on my own kind of first um and then obviously once i started um bringing other people on board uh you know producers and stuff um then you know that's when we started applying to film festivals i i brought an amazing producer on ariana garfinkel um, she kind of helped with some um, early notes and, um, you know, had, had you know, indie doc Yeah, what does experience. a producer do for, like, a one-man operation? Yeah, I mean, I mean that, it's not that, a one-man that, operation, but, like, for something that, you know, sounds like a one-man operation, like, what is, what what value does a producer bring? Like, what, what can they do when they don't need to coordinate the set and the actors yeah. or whatever, you know? For this, it was, and I think one of the reasons why, she, I mean, she, she thought the film was good. She actually wasn't a fan of Showgirls, um, but... Um, but she enjoyed the the cut that I had and knew there was there was something there. Um, and I think and this she, was like was this a friend of yours, a colleague? Like who was? No, this, this was. I was actually I actually was referred to her by one of the the one of the critics I spoke to, uh, Barbara Shulgesser Parker. You know, we we had been emailing you know over the over the months after our interview, and she was checking in on the project, and she uh, was and I mentioned, oh, I'm looking, you know, kind of reaching out to people, trying to find anybody who might be interested in and kind of partnering up with me uh, and who, someone who kind of knows the ropes because, you know, I'm a television editor uh, by day. And so I don't really have to think about how footage comes to me and where it goes after I'm done with it. You know, <laughs> I, I just, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it, it's, it's kind of nice like that, but with this, you know, you, you have to, you have to push it forward. And, um, and so, yeah, she, I, I reached out to her and we, we exchanged some emails and we, we grabbed, uh, lunch one one day when she was in town and you know it, one thing that you know I think also appealed is she's like oh you know so much you've already done so much work I don't think you need like a full-time producer but you know I could come on and help as you know more of like a consultant so she she kind of helped uh, in the early stages uh, kind of gearing me up to to submit to festivals we had like a you know a festival plan and and you know we targeted certain festivals and we we submitted to Tribeca and you know South by and you know, kind of the, the big ones. And, and we heard back from Tribeca, uh, you know, that was the first one we submitted to. And that was the first one we heard back from. So, um, and from there, everything kind of falls into place. Like once you're, um, once you have that, that, that in, then I was able to, you know, speak with people about raising money and, and, you know, start mixing and, you know, start working on graphics and, you know, all that stuff. Do you have a vision for a next project? Maybe there's another, um, another, another 
underappreciated gem you think is worthy mm. of uh, reexamination? Um, I'm playing with some some topics. Uh, I haven't narrowed it down yet, um, but yeah, it, it's going to stay within the the kind of pop cultural landscape. But I don't think it'll focus on you know another film specifically uh again but but it'll be something know. like a similar type of project where you're using i don't know if you want to call it found footage but you're not sh- you're, you're pulling footage that exists together to make a documentary probably uh, yeah pro- i mean it would be nice to kind of shoot some stuff this time um so i'm gonna i'm i guess it all kind of depends on what you know ultimately what the subject is and what you know what the story calls for but sure. um but yeah i mean it, it you know i still have my kind of day job um and so and what and, kind of TV you know, are you editing? Is it like narrative or is it also, you know, documentary like more, in some more way? It's more doc, like news. I'm, I'm cutting a show for Spectrum News One. It's like a 30-minute kind of arts and culture. And then I do a, a science show uh, for Voice of America, a 30-minute science show. So Cool. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in that sense. Like, you know, I've been able to, you know, stay employed and work from home, edit from home. Uh, these last six months and so um but you know as you can probably hear my four-year-old son kind of squealing in the background you know it's well, just, that's the most impressive know. thing is that you <laughs> finish this movie and you have a kid like yeah, that, yeah. That, that, i didn't even mention that a degree of difficulty yeah. before but like and so yeah uh, me and my husband both have uh jobs and so we you know it's just one of those i've been doing it you know these interviews and people are like what's next and i'm like I, there's been no time for anything <laughs> that's fair. Uh, that now is. that we're we're all here and parenting and working so I mean, we're very lucky. Everyone's healthy uh, and we're employed. But uh, but yeah, looking forward to, to you know, kind of getting working with the creative stuff and, and, and having fun next. Well, I'm glad to hear that things are going smoothly. Congrats on not only finishing this movie, but also uh, finishing a great movie. It's really fun to watch. And it, I think it like um, is a, a great companion. I mean. I would, I guess, I would recommend people watch Showgirls. It is, as you say, a singular movie. There's nothing else quite like it. And then after you watch it, you're going to have questions. And probably the best way to get answers is to watch Jeffrey's documentary. You don't know me, N O M I. It's available, I think, virtually anywhere you might want to rent a movie. Is that right, Jeff? Correct. Yeah. Uh, iTunes, uh, Amazon, Vudu. I think Fandango. You know, anywhere we can rent a movie, like you said. So go check it out. Jeff, thanks so much for uh, breaking down the movie for us. Thank you, Jeff. That was a HeadGum Podcast.